Go Forth dives into the stories of Kentucky-born artists who were able to attend a program called the Kentucky Governor's School for the Arts, a highly selective three-week intensive arts program for young gifted artists in Kentucky. The program started in 1987 and still runs every summer in the state of Kentucky, accepting around 250 young artists in nine different artistic disciplines, architecture, creative writing, dance, drama, film and photography, musical theater, instrumental music, visual art, and vocal music. The program aims to give young artists a taste of what it means to pursue a career and life in the arts, providing a sense of community, acceptance, and I am enough for the first time in many students' lives. Join us as we catch up with some of Kentucky's finest, now out and about in the world, making a difference through art, education, community, and more. Welcome to episode one of the Go Forth podcast. Today we have Samuel Lockridge and Tay Schultz of Lexington, Kentucky, with their theater company, After Culture. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Sam and Tay's journey into their company, After Culture, which they formed together. Sam and Tay served on staff uh, as resident assistants at the Governor's School for the Arts for several years, and um, also we're going to touch base on what they do as creatives in their everyday life with their company, and also just finding ways to live as a creative in the state of Kentucky and not necessarily feeling like you have to live in those major cities, uh, that there is a place for young artists here in Kentucky and that you can be successful in staying here and making a vivid, uh, very rich creative life for yourself here. And um, also talking about their newest creation, uh, Who Holds the Devil, with their company, After Culture, which is an immersive cautionary tale um, based on Faust, and um, a little bit how you can get involved with that process. And also touching base on their experience with the Toyota Alumni Fund and uh, how they've used that funding for their own creative endeavors. So stay tuned. All right. Um, so welcome. Uh, this is episode one. I have Samuel Lockridge and Tay Schultz here. Samuel Lockridge is an alumni of the musical theater program in 2006. And Tay Schultz is a drama alumni from 2008. Um, so I'll turn it over to you all to kind of talk about who you are as individuals and um, what you all do creatively right now. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I'm Kay Schultz, and I am a 2008 alum for Governor's School for the Arts. I also um, hold a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting from Wake Park University, and I am the Artistic Director of Agriculture Theater and one of the co-founders. Mm. Yes, and I... Uh... As you said, attended GSA in 06 for musical theater, um, and uh, I studied philosophy in undergrad and then did a master's in public administration. Um, I'm a he heavy music background, music and theater, um, and I'm currently working as the arts education director uh, at the Kentucky Arts Council, which I enjoy. Um, 
um, yeah, and actually Tay and I met in uh, 2013 mm -hmm. working on staff at the Governor's School for the Arts. Um, so we're we're really happy to be um, to be talking with you all because it's part of our story as a company and how we how we kind of got got going. Yeah, actually, um, I had the privilege of serving on staff with you all and um, both incredibly beautiful beings. And it's just so beautiful to see um, you as a couple and also you as a creative power, um, what you all do, um, which is super amazing. Um, if you could, could you dive into after culture and um, what kind of brought that to a head? What made you all start the company? Um, what troubles you might have faced along that path? and um, what you all are doing currently with After Culture. Yeah, can I, just to start, I'll just say like, when I met Taylor, I was like over theater. I was like, did not want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I was like tired of it and, and not feeling engaged by any, any of the work that I was seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and I had just sort of resigned myself to, to not do that anymore. And so I, personally credit Tay for sort of like saving my love for theater um, because they introduced me to a lot of really new and innovative and exciting work um, in immersive theater that I wasn't really aware of or didn't really understand. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like where I was at the moment uh, that, that we, like the moment before we decided to, to start working on it. Okay. <clears throat> I'm sorry for coughing so much. No, it's fine. But yeah, in in 2013, when Samuel and I met, um, I was sort of uh, in the throes of being introduced to theater. That was blowing my mind. Uh -huh. Um, I the conservatory program that I went to um had like way too many students to be a theater program, and. <clears throat> The main stage shows would cast like you know a, a very small percentage of us per semester, so there were a bunch of us who were really really driven, um, and really wanting projects, well, like wanting so much to do projects. I think there was also at the time <clears throat> rules around people being able to be casted outside of the TV shows. Uh -huh. You couldn't you couldn't go out on auditions and you weren't being cast in the main stage show. So um, People who were who were in um, my level <clears throat> just started to produce their own theater. <clears throat> started to um, do house shows um, just with each other, or do like promenade style neighborhood walkthrough shows. Um, in my neighborhood, we did uh, like a promenade style Romeo and Juliet, where you could watch Romeo's side or Juliet's side, depending on which night you picked. You would see both scenes, or you'd see scenes that had both characters, otherwise you would see scenes that had them alone. Uh -huh. And so many people in our neighborhood participated and let us use their home so that there would be different homes for all the characters. <sighs> uh, stuff like that was happening, and that was getting me also more energized about theater and what was possible. And there's um, another theater company in Pittsburgh called Quantum Theater, Mm -hmm. That was doing really interesting site-specific stuff um, in early teens um, that was getting us all super excited. So 
um, around this time too, like 2012, 2013, Dave Nomore came to New York City, and we were all really nerdy about fixed display theater, and we started to go to New York and see that show. So, um, <clears throat> when I met Sam, I started to talk about these things. I'll just add, yeah, if you're if your listeners are unfamiliar, uh, Sleep No More is a production um, by this British company called Punch Drunk. Um, it's an adaptation of Macbeth, kind of done in the style of a Hitchcock thriller. Mm-hmm. I think that, maybe more than any other show, is sort of responsible for putting immersive theater on the map, like in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that was a big entry point for for us and for a lot of other people in this part of the world. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that show in particular for me um, totally raised the stakes in terms of what like I understood to be possible, especially for, for wanting to produce like dreamy style theater uh-huh. or like theater that really lends itself to the fantastic um, and makes you feel like you're sort of living in a theater contract to me. Um, yeah. So effective. And so <clears throat> I feel like I w- we were talking about these things, and I think we even made a show together as an adaptation before I took you to see that production. Uh, yeah, our no exit, our first. Yeah, we had done no exit. Yeah. And we had done no exit, we had done a site-specific no exit that was pretty immersive. It was very close to happening. And I was like, we could do theater that doesn't have dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Says the and I, I grew up as a dancer, so you know, <laughs> I'm I can be like a pretty rigid sort of thinker sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, I was having trouble selling Sam on that idea that there that there could be like devised no dialogue theater, <laughs> and that things could like exist on tracks, and at the time I didn't really know how to explain how that might work. Uh-huh. You need to just see the show with me and experience it, and then maybe we can imagine what that might look like in some or what it could look like for perfect casting. So in like December of 2015, Samuel came to New York with me and we saw the show. Uh-huh. And then for like the next year, I think we were like fiddling and trying to figure out the structure, um, which is how the tracks and sleep no more, um, all the different character tracks, it's how they are able to all exist on the same soundtrack, but have different yeah. choreography and different um, like spatial trajectories throughout the warehouse, and then they come together at times and break apart again. Um, we were trying to figure out how that's possible. Um, what what really did it for me was uh, we had the opportunity to meet um, Tom uh, Tom Pearson of Third, yeah. R- Third Rail Projects um, when he, he came to Louisville actually for the Manifest um, oh. a really great talk on immersive theater and um, and a lot of it was like more sort of introductory stuff um, and then I like like ran up to him after his talk and I was like wait talk to me about a thing you said. You, you said something about loops. And, and he was like, yeah. And I like made him do this really quick napkin sketch of like how to structure, um, 
how to structure an immersive show that takes place across multiple spaces simultaneously. So how you make sense of having multiple scenes happening simultaneously, um, sometimes with different contracts, um, and how, how you make all of that time properly. Um, and anyway, so meeting him was like, he probably doesn't even remember that conversation, but for me, it was like hugely important um, to just have like a visual. Um, he just drew it. Yeah, I'm like yeah. a thinker. <laughs> so great. <laughs> you had like these, like, uh, what, like obsessive style, like string graphs in our house, like trying to figure out what mm -hmm. we yeah. Did it take him like a long time to diagram this for you, or was it very simple? <laughs> trying to go back to his hotel, I bet, and then he just looked it up in like four minutes yeah. on this napkin. He was like, yeah, oh. works like that. <laughs> it, and it is like, you know, it is like, um, I don't mean to say that there is like, there's not like a, a way, right? Like, like a panacea of like how to devise immersive theater, but sometimes like deciding on a backbone, like deciding a structure first and giving yourself um some creative constraints to like play within um is super helpful like if we know so like our the last production that we did was called trinity um in 2017 and that was uh, about robert oppenheimer and the invention of the atomic bomb and so before we had any content devised for that show um, or any music picked out or anything we knew that the structure of the show was going to be three identical 30-minute loops um, and so all we had to do um, was was like fill in, like we knew that there was going to be 30 minutes total of action. And then the, that 30 minutes was going to be subdivided into three like 10 minute episodes. Okay. So we sort of like gave ourselves an outline to fill in. Um, mm -hmm. And that was like immensely helpful. So you devise around the structure. You essentially create the structure and then within it you devise. Yeah. So, so similarly, like with our new production, um, Who Holds the Devil, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a different structure. This one doesn't loop, actually. Um, it's, it's about 90 minutes, but we, the way we started, actually, was still determining um, an outline. And we came up with seven chapters, basically, okay. um, that we knew, uh, we knew sort of like the theme of each chapter and like what needed to get communicated um in that amount of time and uh and that was sort of our our starting point for knowing like what our goal needs to be in the devising process for this scene um so you're not really ever starting totally from scratch if you give yourself some creative constraints like that okay um and with with the content that you all choose to devise around like how do you choose the content that you end up creating pieces on like how do you like decide what is most passionately connected like how do you choose your pieces what drives you to those pieces um we we knew when we first started creating theater in 2016 um that we wanted it to always be like politically socially relevant to like the wider like global context um and we wanted it to be um empowering um, working class and we wanted to um, 
we wanted to find ways to connect the classic story and like myth and mythologies to uh -huh. narratives that we could make um, immediate um, and specific to whatever the climate of the current moment was. So we brainstormed a lot after Noah's in 2016, mm -hmm. and um, we we thought of like a number of myths that we thought would be um, they would lend themselves really well to being So we thought a lot about Prometheus, the myth of Prometheus, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's it's not a secret that lots of people before us already found the connections between popular science and Prometheus. But okay. we wanted to like highlight the stories of Prometheus, or highlight the aspects of the story of Prometheus that we thought were the most radical, um, and and frame that in a way that made sense for a twenty. So we use Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer's relationship to um, the three women that he loved, sort of, sort of like recombine the characters um, of his life that helped guide him, um, in some ways away from evil and towards the good. Um, and we also highlighted ways that evil is hard to overcome because it's unavoidable. Um, but we started with Prometheus for that particular one. And we knew that we wanted to do a Prometheus story in the book. Similarly with Evil and the Devil, we've known for a long time that we wanted to do a Faust adaptation. Mm -hmm. is the, the metaphor of um, just a mortal person's bargain with the devil is so apt for um, our current predicament with climate catastrophe. Yeah. Um, so we've known we've known for several years that that needed to happen, and it we just haven't like had the right space, and we haven't had, like exactly the right people for such a project. And then this year it sort of all came together, and we had people, and we had the right space, and it seemed like the right moment to film it. Okay. Yeah, and another I don't know if if I can just jump in again to. Of course. Like, that something you said today reminded me of another just part of our value statement i guess i'll say is that so much of immersive theater like immersive theater is is an immense undertaking it's like in some ways like it takes a lot more to pull it off well and so because of that um it is it really thus far is 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 only being done by like really Kind of well-established and and wealthier companies in these sort of cultural coastal cultural yeah. um, hotspots, and and it's just absorbently expensive um, to to go to a lot of these shows, and it's completely inaccessible to regular people. Um, and even in terms of content, like sometimes uh, I'm left feeling like the content of some of these bigger immersive shows is just sort of catering to like um basically like a, a it's sort of a spectacle for rich people on, on business trips you know it's, yeah, yeah it's just big um a big ruling class like you know bottle service party um and that's like you know whatever but we that's not exciting to us in terms right. of why we're bothering to make theater that's like so difficult to make um you know and 
and with that too, being in a smaller town like Lexington, um, you know, we, we, someone like, people like us couldn't move to New York and make theater like that anyway. Um, we would, we'd be just struggling to survive. Like we'd never be able to do that. And so being in a, in a community like Lexington with like an arts scene that's like so supportive and shares resources and such a supportive community and access to more space. Um, this is like the only way we'd be able to, to do stuff like this is being um, and with people that are not like um, people that are, that are excited by it because you're making it for them. It's for them. It also seems that um, creating theater like this in Lexington, you all might have one of the only um, like site-specific immersive theater companies there. So it's like eye-opening for young artists as well as uh, people who are used to like only seeing musicals and that kind of thing. Like it's something that kind of broadens their um, creativity in a way and it challenges their political intellectual belief systems in a way that, you know, into the woods. Well, that one's not a good example, but <laughs> um, I don't know, something else that's very um, surface level. Uh, we, we do need to give a shout out to our, uh, our friend and mentor, Ave Lawyer of okay. uh, Bridge Theater. Um, he's been like a, a really strong supporter and, and mentor for us and helped us in a lot of ways. And she's been doing site-specific theater in Lexington, for, in Lexington for a number of years. Yeah, I've been doing stuff in Lexington since like the late 90s, early 2000s, which I think was Lexington's maybe first gateway mm -hmm. in site-specific work. And she's created such beautiful work um, and is so supportive of us. Um, continue to make immersive and site-specific work in Lexington. So um, again, it's like that that amount of support, I don't know if that's so possible in these huge cities. I don't know. Um, it's just so easy to find connections in Central Kentucky. People who like are excited by the work and want to see more of it. Um, like we, we know who those people are. They come to us, they ask to be part or to help. And it's just wild. <laughs> so great. Um, um oh sorry i was just we're just going now that's, that's good. <laughs> just to, like part of the another part of our sort of mission and values is like culture building and and we um you know central kentucky like we we lose so many young creative people to atlanta or nashville or cincinnati or you know they, they move away because of, of like a lack of um, of a thriving arts scene here. Um, anyway, so we want to be, it's, it's more difficult to stay in some ways, but we wanted to, to make it, uh, we want to be part of making Kentucky the kind of creative place that, like, where it's possible to, to, to live here and work here as an artist um, and survive and thrive and not feel the pressure to leave to one of these cultural hubs. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, just to kind of like, like see more inside of how your like creative process works. Uh, when you do have um, a text or a piece that you want to work with and then a historical or political um, topic that you want to also kind of devise around, do you find the, the group of people to collaborate with like at that same time or 
Like, how does that process work? And then do you like immediately start with the text? Do you immediately start with movement? Or how does all of that, how does that part begin? And like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little different every time. For, um, for this show, a lot of it has begun with, uh, with our movement, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I I like working with with all kinds of folks, and our show has um, professional actors, professional dancers, um, and then we've got um, like yogi uh, low arts um, extraordinaires as well. Yeah. Um, so it and you know the people that came to the project, no matter what their artistic background were. Mm -hmm. this is the most important thing everyone like was down with the premise mm -hmm. um, the premise of the show being that we're about 150 years in the future um humans have pretty much rendered the planet inhospitable mm -hmm. um and there's um a vault that if opened could contain the potential to revitalize life but that vault is being guarded by um sort of an AI creature that um, they have to prove to this creature that they understand what's going on. Because in the story of Faust, he's like, um, yeah, sort of their moral, they have to figure out why humans made the choices they did and, and prove and promise that they will make the same choices if they're able to get the opportunity to revitalize life. So when folks heard that premise, like the people in the show are the people who heard that and were like, yes, I want to be part of that. That feels like that resonates with me. That feels like a story that I want to help tell. And so um, that's how we found the people who are involved. Okay. Um, and we've got uh, all different modes of, of um, moving. Folks have all different modes of how they like to be in their body, what feels comfortable in their body. Um, so what we did for the first few rehearsals, um, probably the first two weeks of rehearsal, folks came to rehearsal and we did um, improvisational movement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that um, is thanks to our movement director and choreographer, Jason Ross, um, who brought us through um, viewpoints mm -hmm. and techniques. Okay. Um, and uh, other other sort of dance and improvisational methods. Um, we've also had um, some guest artists come and work with our performers, including Helen Hamill, who's um, a choreographer and installation artist based in Atlanta. Okay. She did some really beautiful work on sort of devising phrase, how, how to find like phrase in the body and how to find phrase based on imagination of some kind um, and so through that we found a lot of we found out like how our cast wants to move um, mm -hmm. and like what what movement vocabulary is going to work for everybody mm -hmm. we found also some really beautiful movement motifs that audiences will see in the production um, that can articulate movements um, so once we had sort of an idea of how movement could be structured and what movement we really love um, and what movement sort of fits the premise of the show. 
then you are able to take the structures that Samuel had written out, which was our seven chapters. Okay. Sort of the case narrative from that based on the improvisation. Okay. So those individuals are very involved in that process from early on. Yes. Okay. We're involved. Um, they're just as much um, the creators of this story okay. as anyone on the production or the yeah, we've had like a really, really long uh, production process. Um, like 10 weeks. Yeah, which is like not, that's like not typical for, um, for theater. Um, but my, uh, something I, the way I like to think about it is this old, the old saying that like, if you give me four hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first three hours sharpening my ax. Yeah. Um, you know, so so that's sort of the approach that we've taken to to devising our our show is like spend spend the time up front to um, to to like build investment like among each cast member um, so that everybody feels a sense of ownership uh, over the creative content and make sure that the movement that we're generating um, feels um, like. Uh, like it lives well in each person's body and not just like like cookie cutter stuff that we we like predetermined and now are just going to impose on um you know a a a perfectly replaceable performer that could in anybody so it's it's person specific as much as it is site specific <laughs> um I would love to touch on the the TAP funding that you received, Tay, that brought you out to Washington, I believe, Theater of the Oppressed. Um, how that impacted you as an artist and um how it helps you facilitate um rehearsals, uh the devising process. Um yes. you want to touch base on that? Yes. Um I was very honored and privileged to receive funding in um, 2018 from the Toyota Alumni Fund to go and get my facilitator training at Theater of the Oppressed at the Mandala Center for Change under Mark Weinblatt in um, Port Townsend, Washington uh, during June of 2018. It was awesome. It was so awesome. It was um, a 10-day learning process that also included them touching on facilitation for playback theater, which is another form that I got to do a little bit in college, um, where where theater of the oppressed is sort of about activation um, and about uh, getting really comfortable with um, conflict and getting comfortable with irresolution. Theater mm-hmm. feels like um, super cathartic um, and a really excellent tool for if you've got like a group of folks who've gone through a similar trauma together, you can do playback with them as a means of like naming and moving through the emotions of the, of the trauma. Oh. Um, and the people who came were so fantastic and I learned so much from the other participants. Um, but I, I also learned a lot from my facilitator and from my cohort about holding space and how when you do like political activated theater that is like not about characters it's about you like you're you're naming your past 
you're naming your political experiences on your walk in the world. Um, and even among progressive people, there's there are um, hiccups, you know, and, and road bumps and things that come up, um, little internalized things that um, activate us. And um, yeah, I it was just an incredible experience to learn how to hold space. That's allowed the culturally um there's this wanting to massage over conflict especially in a learning environment um so what you know what's an environment like where we're learning together and we're really open to having conflict and wanting to change for it mm-hmm. um, also how do we do how do we like make agreements early on to protect ourselves so that when we know we're going to be activated um we can take care of ourselves in the best way possible so um after doing that course, I was able to, I've been able to teach a little um, TO over the last year and a half, um, sometimes just in one-off events, and sometimes, uh, like most recently this fall, I did um, a donation-based course, like a six-week course um, for, for folks who wanted to, you know, who wanted to just have certification only. Um, the way that that makes an appearance in rehearsals um, especially in this process, which is, this is the first after-culture process that I've done since taking that class. Mm-hmm. We started off our desires for rehearsal, rehearsal agreements um, because um, it's a show about climate catastrophe and um, because our, our actors were going to do so much devising work around like who their characters are, like who are their future characters who are alive in the aftermath of collapse. And what's that like for them? And what were their expectations? And that's work that's going to bring up a lot of emotion and probably also a lot of misery. Um, and so we just made agreements early, um, a lot of which were based on agreements that I learned from the McDonald's Center um, around taking care of ourselves, how to uh, respond to activation in our own bodies and how to take space for ourselves if we need to. Um, and how to honor each other in what everyone is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, I feel like, you know, I growing up and doing theater, we never had agreements around, like, you, if something is making you uh, activated or you need a second, take a second. Yeah. No one said that. You were very much expected to just stay in the room. Go through it. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> I love you know, culturally where we're headed around self-care and like and, and like being highly tuned in to what's happening in the body and the brain. Mm-hmm. And if you have to take a second, stuff is coming up. Take a second, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it would make, it makes sense and it's this honor that it brings to the cup because we start feeling the, the gravity of what we're talking about versus yeah. like cutting ourselves off for it, from it or like asking for permission from it. Um, when we when we believe that it matters, when we honor that it matters, um, that that lends itself so much more to the creative process. But then we also need to make sure we take care of each other as well. So yeah, it's just immensely powerful. I, getting to do that work, um, uh, Toyota Alumni Fund making that possible has totally just like changed my world in the right way. Yeah, you know, a process can like interact. That's awesome. I'm so glad you got to do that as well. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, if people are interested in getting involved with uh, your show, Who Holds the Devil? Um, how might they go about that? How can they get tickets? Where are you guys um, going to be? And how much are tickets? All of that jazz. You're, so if folks want to buy tickets, uh -huh. they're available online at um, the Pay Miller Downtown Arts Center. Um, backslash um, black box theater i believe it's i believe it's maybe it's lexingtonky.gov backslash Miller downtown art center backslash black box theaters. or you can also go to the africulturetheater.com website and go to current projects and under current projects there's a link to my tickets as well i'll link it i'll link it in the um like the text of the podcast too so that way okay cool um, you can also call um, 859-425-2560 for the box office or that way. Okay. Um, tickets are $30 in advance, $35 at the door, and every night before the performance, there's going to be limited rush tickets. Oh. Um, so if you get there right at 6 when box office opens, you could get in line and get a $20 ticket. Um, those will sell out, mm -hmm. um, but that's also an option for students. But also, you don't need to be in advance to get that rush ticket. If you okay. want a rush ticket, you can just come and get in line for a rush ticket. Um, yeah, our run, uh, we open on the 22nd of January, and uh, so we that's a Wednesday, and so we run that Wednesday through Sunday. And then um, Monday, Tuesday are dark, and then again that following Wednesday through Saturday, February 1st. Yes. Okay. And we are looking for folks who want to help us either with front of house or sort of backstage help. And okay. folks who maybe want to volunteer for our strike on February uh, 2nd. And if people want to ask us more questions or if they want to volunteer to be part in some way of, of our team for the project, they can email us at afterculturetheater at gmail.com. Okay. With an R-E. R-E. Thank you. It's so much nicer. Yes. Um, and just as kind of a closing, uh, I would love if you all could uh, talk about, because I love that you're bringing the type of theater that you are to Central Kentucky. And I think that, you know, it, it is encouraging young artists that they can make a living doing theater or whatever their art form is in Kentucky and not like making them feel like they do have to go to larger cities. Um, and that's amazing. If you have any advice for young artists who, I can't speak for everyone else, but I know that, you know, being a young student in high school, I felt like a lot of theater teachers kind of made you feel like if you didn't leave Kentucky, it was like, you're giving up. I don't know if you all experienced that, but um, like what, what advice would you give young artists who do kind of feel that pressure that um, they have to leave to be successful? What would you tell them? Um, yeah, I've, I have a few thoughts on that. Uh, my first, first thing definitely is don't try to do it alone. Um, I mean, the only way that we've been able to do what we've been able to do is because we 
the support of an artistic community. Um, and we know they have our backs all the time. So many other companies um, and like universities and, uh, and other groups have like lent us props and costumes and lent us space to practice in. Um, so it, like we wouldn't be able to do this without like a community of support. So um, that'd be the first thing I say is like build relationships with other creative people. And I think that's a special thing about Lexington. There's not like this, cre like we, no one sees in the creative community here, no one sees themselves as like competitors. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's like super special. Um, and, and, you know, and then when you find yourself like on your feet and like in, in a position to, to return the favor and help others, um, that's really important too. So like we, we at this point have built up like an enormous uh, stock of like props and set pieces, for example, that like now we're, we're able now to, to lend those to others um, and help others um, care projects. Um, volunteer your time, volunteer your labor, anything you can do to build um, those creative relationships. And um, yeah, and secondly, I would just say in terms of like finances and stuff and like finding grant money and all of that, um, that, that's probably the biggest challenge, but it is there. There are organizations, um, like we used to be a, a sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, um, which is a nonprofit based in New York, um, and they operate as a fiscal agent. Um, they have tons of great resources um, for artists all over the country. Um, now we've been able to become our own 501c3 nonprofit, thanks uh, in part to the Toyota Alumni Fund, um, grant that, that I received um, to cover the administrative costs of that. So, um, you know, and the Kentucky Arts Council where, where I, I work now, like has um, opportunities for emerging artists. Um, there's the Al Smith Fellowship um, that is uh, for a different uh, discipline every year. So um, there are opportunities out there. Sometimes it just takes a little digging to find, to find the grant funding. Um, organizations like LexArts. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, and if if anybody out there like wants to just like have coffee with us, we, we are always happy to do that. Yeah, and I want to add to, you said like how, like talking about success, finding success. Um, you know, sometimes school teachers think success is going to be you going to Chicago or you going to college. And I think, you know, everyone's dreams are different. Um, I realized when I was in my program in college that, like, um, probably the path for me wasn't going to be going to L.A. and trying to break into an acting career. Mm -hmm. so probably that wasn't going to be the thing for me. Um, and that was important for me to realize. And I think when I realized that really what I wanted was to be a creative um, and to, like, produce and make things possible um, and be sort of an innovator, um, then it made a lot of sense for me actually to come home um, because sort of Sam touched on this, like the cost of living in Kentucky versus the cost of living in a big city is so much less. Um, and you can find like speed gigs and jobs in central Kentucky and Louisville and surrounding places. Um, and you can have like a low cost of living and you can like make space in your life and still survive and, and have, time to be 
the innovator that you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's also, I think, in a smaller cultural hub like Lexington or Louisville, easy to network and find your people and mm -hmm. get a support system and find an audience. Um, I I don't know what that's like in bigger cities. I imagine it takes a little bit more time to establish. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, you know, know that like you are many things. You aren't just a dancer. You're not just a painter. Um, and lean into all the things that that give you joy. You know, um, I've been able to sort of make make my living by dabbling in film and dabbling in teaching um, and finding strength sort of like on a wider array than I would have originally thought that I had capabilities. Um, and just grow, grow your skill, um, your toolbox. Um, lean into all the things after you graduate from, from college or from high school. Give yourself the space to hone all your skills. And then as you're growing your skills, know your worth also. And um, find people who also agree to that worth that you know you have. Um, when you offer your skills, get paid. <laughs> Um, and and own that because art is labor. Yeah, it's labor. And the, I think that there's a, I, I think this idea too, talking about success and chasing success. Mm -hmm. I think this idea that like, if you aren't like making your living like as an artist and aren't like famous because of your art, that you have somehow failed as an artist is like a super harmful idea, and and is is like a totally unrealistic um, expectation to place on yourself because the vast majority of artists alive and who have ever lived die in obscurity. The vast majority of us will never be like world famous names, but that doesn't mean that our creative lives were a waste um, or were not like truly worth living and, and, and enriching um, ourselves and, and the lives of others around us. Like, so, like it's okay like don't beat yourself up if like you have to work a survival job also because for as long as we live under like an economic paradigm that does not value the arts mm -hmm. that's our plight um and therefore we need each other um most importantly to, to survive that and, and thrive within that as artists yeah that was beautiful Thank you. All. <laughs> um, it's been so great to catch up with you all, and I, I do hope to come see uh, the show soon, um, just to experience the work you all create in person. Um, but thank you all so much, and um, I'll have to catch up with you deeper um, some other time. Go Forth Podcast strives to connect alumni of the Kentucky Governor's School for the Arts with prospective students and art lovers alike. Hear the stories and journeys of Kentucky's young artists next time with us on Go Forth. Thanks for listening.